All right, if you'll in, open up to the inside there, it says redemption is a bigger story. This week I was having a conversation with my 16-year-old son. We have, he's uh, working out a lot more now, and I, I used to, so I have this memory of working out so we can have conversations. And we were talking about the merits of handstand push-ups. Handstand push-ups are what they sound like if you've never done them. You do a handstand and you do a push-up, and I can do those. 15 years ago or 20, I don't know how long. It's been a long time. But they're really a, a fruitful exercise. And uh, so I was discussing with Joshua, our 16-year-old, the merits of them. But I, as I started talking about them, I started trying to think back, when's the last time I actually did one of these? And I determined that it had been so long, I did not want to test it out in front of him because I didn't want to look stupid in front of my son. And um, so I told him how to do it. You know, if you can't do it, teach. And uh, the reason I hadn't uh, was, the reason I was concerned is the way you do handstand push-ups is by doing handstand push-ups. By putting yourself in the position and having resistance against you, and by that, you get stronger. Resistance actually makes us stronger. It's common in exercise, and we need strengthened on a regular basis. We need strengthened on a regular basis as the people of God. One of the ways, one of the means of that as the people of God is that every week we come to the communion table. This is a means God gives us for strengthening or bolstering our faith. We say, you know, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And as we've been looking at in, in the, the biblical mind, remembrance is not just an intellectual exercise. It's an, it's an active taking. So when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, he's saying, actively take me. You get me in this. And this is a way of bolstering our faith. Uh, pressure is a natural way for things to grow. And we need strengthened. And our faith is part of that. In the early 1980s, there was a project began in the Arizona desert, now I think owned by the University of Arizona, called Biosphere 2. It was an indoor, it was a, like a, a huge, massive greenhouse, supposed to be a perfectly contained earth environment, free from corruption, in which they could study all kinds of things, and a lot of good discoveries have come out of that. But one of the things they discovered is that the trees in Biosphere 2, before they could get to maturity, would collapse on themselves. They just would be so weak they would collapse. It turns out the reason for that is the one thing missing in Biosphere 2 is wind. There's no wind. And the way trees develop is when in, in, the, in, the, in the wild, in nature, when they're growing, even from a, a young age, as the wind blows on them, the wood in the tree responds by producing more cellulose, and what's created in the tree is called stress wood or tension wood, which is a stronger, more flexible wood, so that by the time the tree is larger, it's strong enough to hold itself up. But without that pressure from the wind, it is weakened. So for that, pressure is necessary for health. Pressure is a normal, necessary uh, requirement for health. And that is something that some of the current researchers in our culture are wondering if we have forgotten. So there's an interesting book, an intriguing book to me, called The Coddling of the American Mind by a, um, a social psychologist named Jonathan Haidt from NYU, uh, not written from a Christian pers perspective at all. Actually, he's quite antagonistic to the gospel, but has some good common grace insight here in what uh, Haidt calls safetyism. Safetyism. Let me just read a paragraph from Jonathan Haidt. Safetyism. Safety is good, of course, and keeping others safe from harm is virtuous, but virtues can become vices when carried 
to the extreme. Safetyism refers to a culture or belief system in which safety has become a sacred value, which means that people become unwilling to make trade-offs demanded by other practical and moral concerns. Safety trumps everything. Safety trumps everything else, no matter how unlikely or trivial the potential danger. When, and now he's, Hyde is particularly concerned about children and then those who are moving into college, but it, broadly applicable for the rest of culture. When children are raised in a culture of safetyism, which teaches them to stay, quote, emotionally safe, unquote, while protecting them from every imaginable danger, it may set up a feedback loop. Kids become more fragile and less resilient, which signals to adults that they need more protection, which then makes them even more fragile and less resilient, and so on, and so on, and so on. Now, so safetyism, Jonathan Haidt has received a fair bit of criticism for that. The criticism I've read is this might make people feel unsafe, virtually saying exactly what he says. So uh, I find it intriguing. I find him somewhat insightful. I find him actually more than that. He's, I think he's very insightful. I commend the book to you, uh, yet it is not Scripture. But what Scripture says is something like this. James 1, the book of James begins with these words. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The testing, the trying, the trials against your faith actually produce a strength in you that brings life to you. Pressure creates health. That's a normal way of being in the Scripture. The next, chat, the next book, First Peter, Peter writes that we have an inheritance in the gospel that's imperishable, unfading, held in heaven by God for us. And that makes us rejoice so he says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Here's what this is saying. Guys, there is no such thing as an untested faith in the Bible. Now, we may think that's normal, like we should never have things tested, and if things are testing us and pressing against us and causing us to doubt and be frustrated and fearful, that that's, something must be wrong. Over and over, the Scripture says, this is the normal way of being in the world. Now, we have done a really great job, maybe in the 21st century, of creating a lot of comfort, and you know what? I like the comfort, honestly, like everybody else. However, we run the risk of thinking, that's normal that we should never be challenged, that we should never be stressed, that we should always be safe, 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 safe. And our, that means our faith never can be pressured and tested, and that's just not the picture of the Scripture. There's no such thing as a faith that does not require us to stand against and stand up under ungodliness. That's always required in every age of every people everywhere. The faith walking with Jesus requires us to stand up against and up under ungodliness as the Scripture defines it, not as our culture gives the virtue of the weak to us, but like as our Scripture actually talks about ungodliness, we have always been required to stand up under that in Jesus because when we come into Jesus, we come into conflict with the, the powers of this age, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, the Apostle Paul says. It's normal. It's a, it's a normal thing. That's what the people of Israel are experiencing in the Exodus that we're looking at today. So one 
in summary here, maybe, maybe we can say there's no such thing as a safe faith in this chapter of existence for us. The next chapter, where Christ returns, all things are made new, different story. But right now, there is no such thing as a safe faith. It's always been the case for followers of Jesus, for the people in the Exodus, and for you and me today. And the response of God has always been the same too. It's twofold. I am your redeemer. That means I have done what is necessary. This is my, my nature is to bring rescue or redemption to you. You're secure, and I'm a redeemer who will go with you right now. I have redeemed you, and I am redeeming you. You all, you all have a story of rescue that's unfolding in your life, and you're part of a, a huge story of a people that have been and are being and will be rescued, redeemed by God himself. So, The idea today that this scripture is getting at is simply this, that redemption or rescue always involves a bigger story of God's glory that is for our good. Redemption always involves a bigger story of God's glory for our good. And it's a bigger bigger story than we can see in the moment. We're always part of a bigger story here. So if you remember what's happening in the storyline of the Bible, we're going through the Old Testament for the next several months The people of Israel have gone to Egypt. They went there because there was a famine. But then over time, over the the decades, as they turn into a couple centuries, the Egyptians become scared of the Israelites because they're flourishing so much because God is blessing them, and they enslave them. And this is the kind of slavery where basically the state under Pharaoh owns a people group. And to manage them well, they, they funnel all of the... Israelites into this sort of northeast corner of Egypt called the land of Goshen. They thought they were being wise in that. It comes back to bite them a little bit later, but uh, as our folly always does, they, they stick all the Israelites in the land of Goshen and basically turn them into slave labor. They, they force the Israelites to create all the building supplies for the building projects of Egypt, especially the bricks that they make with mud and straw and all that kind of stuff. So the Israelites are in slavery. They cry out to God. God, a couple weeks ago we saw God hears them, and he says, I will rescue you. Last week, I, I am the I am. That's my nature to rescue my people. I'll do that by raising up Moses, and he will speak to Pharaoh. So Pharaoh, I don't know if you've got a, in your mind's eye what Pharaoh looks like from the movies or from the Prince of Egypt or whatever. Um, I think it's best to think of Pharaoh as a fascist dictator. This is the most powerful nation in the world. And the man of that nation, here are the titles that he goes by. We don't get this from the scripture. We get this from Egyptian literature. Here's what Pharaoh's titles were. Savior of Egypt. The universal God. Lord of the living and God of heaven and earth. That's some self-image right there. Pharaoh takes the title to himself of God of heaven and earth. He believes that he is God incarnate, manifestation of the sun god Ra incarnate perhaps. So let's look at Exodus 3. I've got all this in your insert here. This is when God alerts Moses to saying, I'm going to free my people through you, Moses. And Moses says, what, what if they say, what, 
who's the God that sent me? And here's what God says. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of affliction in Egypt. The I am, that we saw that last week. This is my essence. I am the only uh, independent entity ever, anywhere in the universe. And I'm going to take all that energy and focus on redemption. And Moses says, I don't think it's going to work. It's not in there, but it's in it's Exodus 4. Moses is like, I, what if they don't listen? I need a sign. So, you know, Moses gives, God gives Moses a couple signs, like that he'll be with him, like miraculous signs. Like he puts his staff on the ground, it turns to a snake, he picks it back up, turns back to his staff. And Moses is like, well, that's amazing. And God's like, I'm God, right? So I'll be with you, here's the sign. And then Moses says, you know, I don't talk well. I don't talk good, Lord. You know, and so maybe Moses has a speech impediment. Who knows? Moses says, okay, or the Lord says, okay, your brother Aaron speaks better than you. I will appoint him as your prophet. You tell him what to say, and he will speak for you generally. That's Exodus chapter 4. And so they go to Pharaoh. This is Exodus 5, 1. It's in your insert. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. So he's introducing this idea that will become dominant in the next several chapters, the word know, K-N-O-W. I don't know this God. I don't know him. Who is he? I don't know him. Remember, God's just revealed himself, the I am, and Pharaoh's like, I don't know. I don't know. I refuse to recognize the authority of this God and obey his voice. So this is what happens. Uh, Moses, or sorry, Pharaoh told the slave masters, make it harder for them. 5.10. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you any straw. So they were supposed to make bricks with straw in it, and the, the Egyptians would give them the straw. They had to make the bricks. Pharaoh's like, you all are lazy. That's why you got too much time in your hands. You think about going out and worshiping this God. I want you to make the same amount of bricks, but you got to find the straw yourself. It just makes it harder for them. And notice the language here. Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and say, thus says the Lord. Pharaoh says to the people in verse 10, thus says Pharaoh. Why would he do that? Well, he's got a title in his mind, Lord of heaven and earth. Because it's harder, the people turn against Moses. So I want you to just push pause and just see what happened here. God initiates their rescue and it gets harder for them. I don't know, do you have room for a God that big? Or is he more manageable to you? Or your, our rescue can only be pleasant. He initiates the rescue, the large-scale rescue of his people, and it gets worse for them. So the people cry out against Moses, and then Moses cries out to the Lord. 
And this is how God responds in Exodus 6. I unfortunately didn't put both verses in there. I wish I had. But verse 6 and 7, I only put 7. But here, here, verse 6 and 7, what uh, the Lord says to Moses. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with the great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. You shall know me. You shall know me. And then, really the kind of navigational passage we're looking at today, Exodus 7, 1 through 7. This is God speaking to Moses and Aaron just before they go to Pharaoh for the first time before the plagues start. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, meaning that you will speak for me. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. So just as an aside here, not the main point of the text, just one of those little interesting details. These guys are old. 80 and 83. Now, quite a manageable age today. These guys lived a little longer maybe than than most people. uh, But that's pretty old to be leading the revolution out into the desert, up a mountain, down a mountain, up a mountain, down a mountain, right? All I'm pointing out is that the Lord is happy to use weak people who are faithful, which I think is good news if you feel weakened. He uses weak people who are faithful. Not the main point, but a point. Okay, let's step back here and think about this. And first of all, we're going to get to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Some of you might think, oh, that doesn't seem fair. How will God harden heart? He's, fair. He's already hard-hearted, right? This is a dictatorial, fascist emperor of the most powerful nation in the world who thinks it's cool to enslave a whole people group. He's not a soft-hearted individual, okay? Um, God is actually giving Pharaoh what Pharaoh is already, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, this is a bigger story than they're getting. If you th- think about it from the perspective of an individual Israelite, they're enslaved. They're, by this point, their parents were enslaved. It's been decades since they've been crying out, and the Lord said, I hear you. I will deliver you. And then nothing for a while. I'm going to raise up a man named Moses. I'm sure they might think, well, how about just do it faster? We don't need Moses. We just go. Open the sea. We'll walk. We're good. I mean, they, it, God turns out going before them in a pillar of smoke, and a pillar of fire, right? He doesn't need a little 80-year-old man helping him, but he waits. This is hard. They've suffered for a few generations now, but the reality is the story of rescue is 
bigger than we can see in the moment. What is happening here in the Exodus is the Exodus is becoming a template for what God does in history. If you step back and think about it, the moment Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden, they're in exile. And the whole arc of the Bible is going being in exile, coming to the promised land in Revelation 22, where the whole earth is a renewed garden city. And then you have the exodus here, sort of under that. You have the exodus from slavery to freedom. Then the, when they finally get into the land, because of sin, they get carried away in the Babylonian captivity, and they go back from slavery to somewhat freedom in their land, and then Jesus comes on the scene and uses the exact same language of redemption from slavery to freedom, picking up a lot of this language in the Exodus. Taylor's going to preach next week on the Passover lamb, who is Jesus, right? And uh, so there's this major story going on that the individual Israelite who's suffering doesn't understand that they're a part of, but they are. Pharaoh is pictured through the rest of the Bible as a satanic figure, as Satan. He's called the great dragon in Ezekiel. He's called the great dragon in Revelation 12. Jesus is pictured as a better Moses, a better prophet, a better Aaron, right, a better high priest. So the reality is they're in this big story of redemption, and they probably don't see all of it just like you, just like me. Much of the stuff that's happening in our life, in God's own story of rescuing our life, we don't know why it's happening. We have no idea. He does. But that's not new. It's happening back here, even though we're reading about it now. So I think what one application of this is, Though we do not know the what and why of everything that's happening in our own story of rescue, in this story that we're in, I think we can see here that, like, as we respond faithfully, it does become instrumental in the lives of other people. Sometimes we know them, many times we don't. Yes, our children, but beyond that. This is a, this is a big story these guys are in, and they only see a part of it. You're in the same big story. So am I, and we only see a part of it. Some of the suffering, we don't know why. A lot, maybe all of it, we don't know why. Why so long? Why so hard? Why so much betrayal? Why so much heartache? It doesn't, it's not always manifestly clear to us in the moment. That's not new. It is a big story. It's a story of God's glory. The word to know in the chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10, the, the plagues, becomes, comes over and over and over. In fact, half the plagues are prefaced by, so that you will know that I am the Lord. So you will know I am the Lord in the earth. So you will know that I am the Lord. So Israel will know. So Egypt will know. So Pharaoh will know. So what we see in these plagues, and we're not going to, we don't have time to go through all of them, is we see these plagues are judgments against the gods of Egypt. What I mean by that is like, you know, the plagues, like water to blood, frogs, gnats, swarming insects. You might read those today and just like, oh, that's cool, but why did God choose that? Like, why the frogs, you know? <laughs> um, there's a reason. Egypt was the most powerful nation in the world, and they believed they were sustained by a pantheon of gods, the chief of which was Pharaoh. And if you dig into each of these plagues, they are specific judgments on those different gods of Egypt. We'll look at a couple of them. It's so the Egyptians will know your gods are not all that. But it's also so the Israelites will know. 
You would think about it, you're enslaved by these people who are more powerful than you. Maybe you're tempted to think, well, maybe their gods actually are more powerful. They need to know, too, that these gods they thought were stronger than Yahweh are not, that there's no hope for deliverance in them. Okay. And then uh, we'll walk through some of these plagues here. And it says Pharaoh, by the way, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, just so you know, there's the times that it's mentioned. It says God hardened Pharaoh's heart six times. It says Pharaoh's heart is hard seven times. And Pharaoh hardens his own heart three times. What's this communicating? That God's bigger than us. Like last week, I don't know if you remember, I had that yardstick up here. Like here's what God reveals and everything else in going infinitely is who God really is. We have our own little understanding. How can it be that God hardens Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardens his own heart and his heart is hard? Which one is, which one is right? And the Lord's just like, yeah, I'm not worried about that. Like we, we need to have a single cause. Who did this? And the truth is, yes, that's all true. Pharaoh is a hard-hearted person. Pharaoh hardens his heart and God hardens his heart. It's all the same thing. So let's look at a couple of these plagues. Water to blood. I put all these in your insert here. Uh, let's see, seven. I'm not going to read through them. Let me just get, tell you a story. Water to blood. Moses goes and says, you let my people go? Pharaoh's like, nope. So he, he, uh, Aaron hits his staff, puts his staff in the Nile. The Nile the River turns blood red, or it could be blood or blood red. We're not sure what that means. And so the, the, the rivers become uh, blood red, the water in the, some of the pots becomes blood red, and yet Pharaoh's magicians can do some trick where they apparently can turn water in a pot to red as, as well. Uh, so Pharaoh is satisfied that this isn't really that powerful, but the, the, the Egyptians believe the Nile was the source of their life, which for good reason, right? It gives water to the whole Egyptian basin. The god, uh, the guardian of the Nile is the god Khum, K. H-N-U-M. I'm probably saying that wrong. I've never known how to say that. Um, you are the one who guards us and gives us life. And the Lord's like, okay, I'll just turn that to blood. This thing you thought was life, I'll just make it death. Maybe this guardian of the Nile is not such a great guardian after all. And he does this, so that you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And then there's a plague of frogs come up everywhere. You can read this, read this at home. Uh, you're like, well, why is that? The goddess of birth, the goddess of fertility, Hect, was pictured as with the head of a frog. You might have seen this on a lot of some Egyptian relief paintings. This looks like a person with the head of a frog. Oh, this is the source of your life. Oh, yeah? How about frogs everywhere? You'll hate it. It'll stink to high heavens. They'll die. And uh, so that, that's the goddess of Hect. It's shown to be powerless. And so what keeps happening in these plagues is Moses says there's going to be a plague, and Pharaoh's like, yeah, whatever. He, the plague comes, and Pharaoh's like, okay, stop, 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 I'll let you go. Moses prays, the plague stops, and either Pharaoh hardens his heart, his heart is hard, or God hardens his heart. He's like, just kidding, you can't go. So it just happens over and over again. Um, Gnats or sand flies, maybe fleas. It's just Hebrew is a very general language, so we're not quite sure what it's talking about there. But Moses' staff strikes the dust, the, uh, the earth, and out of it comes all these biting like little gnats. The Egyptian god Gabe, the god of earth the, that they worshipped, is shown to be powerless because he can't even stop it from, from happening. 
They're swarming insects. We, your translation might say flies. That's just a guess. It could be beetles. The scarab beetle was revered in Egypt. I think the Lord's probably saying, oh, yeah, you think these are great? How about a trillion of them in your backyard? That sort of thing. Uh, the livestock die of Egypt. Now, remember how Egypt thought it was very wise to put all these slaves in one place so they could manage them. The Lord just says, fine, I'll curse all the other places, but this place called Goshen. The, the Israelite livestock do not die. The Egyptian livestock die. The god of fertility, uh, Hathor, is depicted as a person with the head of a bull. And God says, I'm going to kill it. I mean, this is strong, strong stuff here. Then boils come on the skin. Their oldest god in the Egyptian, Egyptian pantheon was Imhotep, the god of healing. And all these boils come on the skin of the Egyptians. And the Lord's like, Imhotep, in the house? No? Okay. Hail comes, locusts come, eat the crops, not in Goshen, but in the other places. Then there's a plague of darkness reminding Egypt that their sun god, Amon-Ra, is not that powerful after all. Reminding the Egyptians of this, reminding the Israelites of this. Now, Taylor's going to speak next week about the final plague, the death of the firstborn. It needs its own sermon in the Passover. But there's one God of Egypt that hasn't been addressed yet, and that is Pharaoh. The, Egy- the, Egypt- the Egyptian uh, death myth was something like this. Here's what the normal Egyptian believed happened when you died. They kind of believed in the universal sinfulness of people. So you died and appeared in the hall of judgment. And because you would lie about your deeds to cover yourself, they would believe that your heart would be removed. And once removed from the corruption of your body, your heart would tell the truth about your life. And therefore, your heart was a threat to you because it would tell the truth about your sin and you could be judged by it. So the hope was they would be mummified and buried with a, a, a stone scarab beetle put up on their chest. They thought the, the scarab beetles had magical powers. And believe that in the afterlife, when the, the, your heart was removed from your body, that stone scarab beetle resting on your chest would cause your heart to turn to stone and say nothing. It would harden and say nothing. So it would not judge you. And the person who got to sit in judgment of the hardness of heart in the Egyptian death myth was Pharaoh. So. Pharaoh, you want to stand in the place of God and make judgment on the hardness or softness of heart? In this great, poetic, redemptive reversal, God says, you stand in the place of God, your heart is hardened. Your arrogance, your self-righteousness, your sin will be your own destruction. Right? So these mighty acts of judgment are to show the glory of God. Now, why does God want to do that? Does he somehow need these people to worship him? Not at all. He is just as glorious with no one worshiping him as trillions worshiping him. He's doing, one, it's right and true. He's the only, he's the only thing in 
existence, I can't even say that. Again, last week we said we don't have language big enough to talk about the I am. The only appropriate thing for people to do is to worship God. But he, he wants to redeem Israel in a way. Two things need to happen here. When they are tempted to go back, they need to know that this God is stronger than the gods of Egypt. What also needs to happen is once, you know, the, you know the story perhaps that, that Pharaoh's army follows the Israelites into the Red Sea and gets swept over. But you, you know Pharaoh. He's not just going to let people go. He's going to recoup, reboot, and go right into the desert and capture these people unless he's convinced of one thing. There's a bigger God in the desert than there is in this land. So let's not be surprised if God brings redemption into our life in ways that show us that other things which promise redemption and rescue and safety are nothing. Let's not be surprised. If he systematically undoes the idols in our life that would stand in the way of our worshiping him and depending on him, if he does that to us, it is a gift. It's a blessing. It's a good thing. It's a joy. And it's intimately related to him saying, I am the one who will lead you from slavery to freedom. This is for our good. And we end today, same place we ended last week. God's saying, the nature of me as the I am is to take all of that immeasurable strength and all the language we don't even have language for and put into one single reality of redeeming my people. And we're back at Exodus 6. Say to the people of Israel, say to the people of New City, I am the Lord, and I will deliver you from slavery, from the slavery of our own sin, from the slavery of our own pride, from the slavery of our own ignorance and folly and self-centeredness. I will deliver you from slavery, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. And of course, we weren't in redeemed by an act of judgment of God judging Israel or judging Egypt. It was a greater act of judgment. The greatest act of judgment in history. When the I am takes on flesh and stands in our place and receives the judgment that we deserve so we can go from slavery to freedom. And so he can say to us, I am your redeemer. I've done everything necessary. I will bring you home into the promised land, and I will go with you every day. Will it be hard? Yes. Will it be challenging? Yes. Are you in a bigger story of redemption than you know? Yes. Is it still for my glory? Yes. Is it still for your good? Absolutely. Look, guys, I don't know where you are in that story of redemption right now. You might have a lot of stuff going on in your life where you say, I have no idea what's happening. I don't know why it's so painful. I wish it weren't, but it is. I need to see more than I see. God may show that to you but he may not. It may be 10,000 years from now that you see why. Just to be with us. The way we are strengthened in this, in part, is to come to the table. This is a picture of his outstretched arm and his mighty act of judgment. If you're in Christ by faith, 
This table is open to you. We say in the New City community that taking communion is a declaration that I receive and rest on Jesus Christ alone as he's offered the gospel, and I want his lordship in my life. If that's true of you, I invite you to come to the table. I'm going to pray and invite us to come.